Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Time to bring clarity to the chaos. Today, staff evangelist James Collins speaks with Middle East expert Jim Fletcher about Israel's role in Bible prophecy, and Pastor Larry provides answers to important Bible questions. Are you receiving our e-newsletter, A Moment of Prophecy?, Our new email newsletters are going out to thousands of inboxes every week with the latest information on current events in Bible prophecy and special video messages from our speakers. Get these email newsletters free of charge and stay informed. Sign up at swrc.com or call 1-800-652-1144. James Collins is here now to speak with author and Middle East expert Jim Fletcher about the history of the state of Israel and their role in Bible prophecy. In the year 2020, both United States President Donald Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for creating the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords were a rare agreement between the state of Israel and Arab states, including the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan. These accords included diplomatic normalization between Israel and the participating Arab states, as well as formalized economic and trade relations. President Trump described the accords as the dawn of a new Middle East that carries a hopeful tone for the transformation of decades of violence into a peaceful future. But can there ever truly be peace in the Middle East? Joining me today to talk about Israel in the Middle East is Jim Fletcher. Jim is an author and speaker who specializes in Bible prophecy. He is an expert on Israel and co-wrote a wonderful book titled The Last War, which gives a great history of the current state of unrest in the Middle East. Jim, thanks for being on the program with me again today. Hey, thank you, James. It's nice to be with you. Now, Jim, how did you come to be an expert on Israel? I read somewhere that it started when you made your first trip there back in the 1990s. Yeah, that's actually what happened. I went to Israel for the first time with my co-author on The Last Word, David Lewis, who was, of course, a great prophecy teacher. He was really my mentor in all of that and was able to see the country with him for a couple of weeks, and it just really reignited an interest in me that I had when I was younger. And so I really took off after that and and got very involved in in a lot of pro-Israel advocacy and that sort of thing. The title of your book, The Last War, of course, refers to Armageddon in the book of Revelation. Now, is the battle against radical Islam a prelude to the last war? I think so, in the sense that it's also an antichrist system, and it works against the Lord's people, and so certainly I think it is. I think we're seeing definitely the broad outlines of all of that shaping up. They've been at war really with the Jews for 12, 1,300 years, mm-hmm. and it's only intensifying, and that's a sure signal, I think, that we're in the last days. Let's talk about the city of Jerusalem. The Bible says that at the end of this age, Jerusalem will be a burdensome stone to the whole world, and that's certainly true today. The Vatican wants the city under its control. The United Nations wants it to be internationalized, and it seems that the United States is determined to divide it between the Palestinians and the Jews, but the Palestinians want all of it, and Israel says they'll never surrender any of it. It's really complicated, isn't it? It really is. I've long thought 
that the Israel-Palestinian issue will be the trigger for uh, a lot of this end-time conflict because the Palestinians and their international friends, which are many, just don't let up. They stay on point. They stay on message. Even when Trump was in office, they just sort of went underground with it. Now they've come back out with their same inflexible demands. Mm -hmm. One thing about the left is they never take a day off. It requires the Lord's people to be vigilant all the time. Well, now there's been a state of conflict in Jerusalem since Israel captured the city in 1967, right? That is correct. Predating that, the War of Independence, certainly Israel wanted West Jerusalem as capital, and they weren't able to take the whole city. But it's only been when the Jews have been sovereign or close to it in the city that people get upset about that. Right. There's never been a day's rest over it. Well, Israel should have control over their own capital, but the rest of the world obviously doesn't see it that way. Now, isn't that why on December 6, 2017, when President Trump made the proclamation to move the American embassy and recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the Arab world lost their minds, basically? Yeah, they did. But it was more consigned to the Palestinians and their friends. And it was an interesting situation because we found out over time, as the Abraham Accords came into view that I'm not so sure the Palestinians have strong, loyal friends. It was more a matter of pragmatism. Mm -hmm. So Trump was the only U.S. president that rightly saw where the problem was. And when he starved that source of contention, you know, all of a sudden all sorts of possibilities broke open. And now, of course, we're back to where we were. The ultimate enemy uses this situation for his evil purposes. Speaking of conflict, can you help us understand, elaborate on the current political situation in Israel? Help us understand the Israeli election system, first of all, and why did they have four elections in a span of two years, and why was Netanyahu ousted in the last election, and who is Naftali Bennett? have a system that is a parliament, and it's relatively democratic, but the thing that they do that, that I actually think is a weakness is when you vote, you're voting for a party. Now, you're obviously voting for, you know, the head of that party, but it's the party itself that needs to accumulate enough seats to form a majority in the government, and so they continually run into these problems where other parties can hold everything hostage if some of their demands aren't met politically. And so the situation after 12 years of Netanyahu was that he had lost enough support among other parties that they were able to oust him. And I really liken it in similar ways to what happened to Trump. I really look at it as sort of a political coup. Mm -hmm. Now, Naftali Bennett, I don't know that he's a bad guy. He certainly... Uh, you know, he served as distinction, the special forces. And in fact, he was thought of as Netanyahu's protege for a few years. Right. Uh -huh. But I guess he got tired of waiting for Bibi to step aside. And so he formed an alliance with Yair Lapid, who is another career Israeli politician. But Lapid himself is center-left. And a lot of his foreign policy views, I think, are dangerous. And so it makes his pairing with Bennett really strange, because I think Bennett is still a Zionist, but they have joined forces so that they're going to have a unity government, and after a couple of years, I think uh, Bennett rolls uh, off and 
Lapid becomes prime minister right. if the government lasts that long. So this latest dust-up in Israel politics was really all about getting rid of Netanyahu. Bennett, of course, is inexperienced at diplomatic things. He's meeting with Biden. The concern there is that Bennett isn't experienced enough in dealing with the statesman. Well, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jim Fletcher about his book, The Last War. It's a great book, Jim, a page-turner. And Now, this book takes a deep look at the historical, religious, and political realities in the Middle East, and you can get a copy right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Jim, all our political leaders call Islam a religion of peace, but they don't seem very peaceful to me. Why do Islamic radicals hate the West? Well, you know, they're true believers. I mean, they believe their religion, and their religion is a war religion. It's Mm -hmm. a religion of conquering your perceived enemies, and it's an aggressive ideology that has no room for compromise at all. And so I really do believe that while they're obviously following a false religion, they are following it to the letter. And so... The worst offenders are the most devout believers, and you can't reason with someone like that. It's why the Iranian regime is so dangerous. Who are the little Satan and the great Satan in their minds? The great Satan, oddly enough, is the United States, and the little Satan is Israel. They believe that the U.S. as really the superpower is their mortal enemy, Mm -hmm. and Israel as almost an outpost in the Middle East, is maybe a lesser enemy, but no less implacable. And so they have to defeat both of them. They have a deep and abiding hatred for both countries. Why in the world is such a tiny nation, smaller than the state of New Jersey, such a focus of the world? I mean, anything that happens in Jerusalem, it's in the headlines all over the world the next day. Why is that? That is a wonderful question. And I think the only answer is that God said it would be mm-hmm. so. I have to give credit to Dave Hunt there. I read Dave's book, Cup of Trembling, years ago, and he made that argument. He said, you can come up with all sorts of human reasons, and there's human diplomacy, and there's military campaigns, but though Jerusalem has historical value, you know, it's not a city that should be such an obsession for the entire international community, and yet it is, and so you can't find a human answer it has to be that God decided it would be so. There are many places in Scripture where he is clear that history will basically end there. Mm-hmm. And so I love that reason. I love that answer. It, it actually gives me hope. It points to the sovereignty of God, the total control that the Lord has over the affairs of men. And so I think that's it. It's simply because God decided it. Amen. What a great answer, brother. Jim, much of the conflict in Jerusalem has to do with the Temple Mount and who controls it. So in case someone's not familiar, what is the Temple Mount and why is it so important? Well, the Temple Mount is an area in Jerusalem's old city. It's on the very eastern edge. It's a 35-acre compound that is the site of the ancient Jewish temples, the two temples that were both ultimately destroyed now home, of course, to the Muslim Dome of the Rock and also the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so you see there uh, at least the religious contention. The the Arabs would never concede 
them out for any reason I can think of. And yet, you know, the Israelis, the Jews there, increasingly, I think, are looking to rebuild the temple. So you have this flashpoint coming in the future. Well, now let's talk about just who are the Palestinians. I think of them as more political invention than anything else. They're simply Arabs in the Middle East. They're part of what, until the Six-Day War, everyone called the Pan-Arab Nation. It was just simply Arabs that lived in Palestine all the way across the Middle East and the various countries. But after the Arabs realized that they couldn't defeat Israel on the battlefield, they needed another tactic. And so the Soviet propaganda machine helped school people like Yasser Arafat in creating this revolutionary movement and inventing an oppressed people and put them in the place of the underdog. So you can look in newspapers prior to 67, you don't really see a Palestinian people referred to, you hear the Arabs. After that, you hear talk about the Palestinians. It's a clear political invention intended to continually attack Israel and their legitimacy. Now, isn't it true that the Romans came up with the term Palestine and that historically there has never been the Palestinian state? That is absolutely correct. After they kicked the Jews out in the second century, they renamed the the region in Palestina only to erase Jewish history from the area. And so Palestine is not and has never been a sovereign national entity. It just has never existed in history. It was a regional name for 1,800 years. You raise a good point because I would say 90% of the people out there aren't aware of that. And so young people in particular, when they hear about, you know, Palestine being taken away from the Arabs, that is simply not true. Right. Well, you write in your book, The Last War, it is very puzzling why the Palestinian Arabs never made a move to establish an independent state in the years between 1948 and 1967, the 19 years between the establishment of Israel and the Six-Day War. When East Jerusalem and the West Bank were controlled by Jordan, no Arab entity made a move to settle Palestinians there. Only since Israel has grown and prospered has the Arab world shouted about displaced Palestinians. Jerusalem as a capital and an independent state. Now, Jim, that is a profound statement. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? Prior to these relatively modern events, there was never any attempt to create a Palestinian state for the Arabs. And long prior to the wars of the 20th century, I mean, for hundreds of years, I mean, the Ottoman Turks, for 400 years could have created a state for those people. They didn't. The state could have been created after World War II when the Allies just created national borders in the Middle East. It wasn't done. Nobody had any motivation to do so because what we think of the Palestinians, you know, they were just citizens of Jordan or Syria or Iraq. There wasn't a reason to create a state for them. If they had had the foresight they could have certainly created the state and would have blocked Israel from perhaps even existing. Well, I read the Palestinian National Charter, and it denies Israel's right to exist, so I don't understand how you could ever make peace with someone who denies your right to exist. However, everybody keeps harping on about a land-for-peace deal, but now to me that also seems very flawed. You're the expert, though, Jim. Tell me, how would Israel possibly defend themselves? If the Oslo Accords were brought to their conclusion, which would mean establishing a Palestinian state, that 
at its narrowest point, Israel would only be nine miles wide, and that's an area sort of northeast of Tel Aviv. You obviously couldn't defend that kind of area. It would be very, very difficult to defend a shrunken Israel, especially with modern weaponry developed as it is, the rockets and, and things like that. It would be a state that would be in a great deal of peril even more than it is now. Well, I've been talking with Jim Fletcher about his book, The Last War, a great book, and it takes a deep look, again, at the historical, religious, and political realities that are in the Middle East, and you can get a copy right now by calling 1-800-652-1144 or online at swrc.com. Get your copy of today's program with Jim Fletcher by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Thursday is the last day to get this month's thank you gift, God's Promise Box, a beautiful painted canvas cloth box depicting the Lion of Judah looking over the holy city of Jerusalem. This box is filled with Bible verses that remind us every day of God's promises. Get your promise box for a gift of $100 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. Today, Pastor Larry is going to tackle a couple different Bible questions. If you have a Bible question for Pastor Larry, just email askpastorlarry at swrc.com. Most cults and those who argue like Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code claim that Jesus is not God and that the early church did not worship Jesus. Is this true? The Bible makes it very clear that the early church actually worshiped Jesus. In Matthew 8, verse 2, it says that the leper worshiped Jesus. In Matthew 9, verse 18, a ruler, identified elsewhere as Jairus, worshiped Jesus. The man who was born blind after being told who Jesus was worshiped Jesus. That's from John 9:38. What is amazing about this is that Jesus never refused worship. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that while Jesus was on the earth, he was only a man. Significantly, several men in the New Testament did refuse worship. In Acts 10:25 and 26, Peter told Cornelius not to worship him because I myself also am a man. If Jesus were a mere man, his receiving of worship was truly reprehensible. The Greek New Testament word for worship is proskoneo. It is used for the worship of God. In Matthew 4.10, Jesus says, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship, and the word is proskoneo, the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New World Translation, shows how weak their position is because they have to translate proskuneo in different ways. If the word speaks about the worship of God, they translate proskuneo as worship. But if the word is used in reference to Jesus, their erroneous theology forces them to translate the word do obeisance. Clearly, when the word proskuneo is used, both with reference to God Almighty as well as to Jesus, his son, the word should be rendered worship. Why? Because Jesus is God Almighty. This should not surprise anyone. John 5.23 tells us that all men should give the same honor to the Father as they do to the Son. If we should worship the Father, 
then we should also worship the Son. It is a shame that so many Christians who have not been grounded in the holy doctrines of the Bible have been unsettled by these false and erroneous doctrines. Heretics feed on ignorance. After Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16, Jesus said that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ, and that's in verse 20. Why wouldn't Jesus want his true identity to be proclaimed everywhere? We know that Jesus did accept the designation of Christ. In Matthew 16, 17, after Peter had correctly identified him, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. By these words, Jesus indicated that Peter's confession of Christ was true. Peter's statement about Jesus came not from human wisdom, but from the Heavenly Father. However, while Jesus did accept the designation, the Christ, or the Messiah, his disciples and those living in first century Israel had some mistaken notions about what the Christ meant. They thought that the Christ would be a warrior who would drive the hated Romans out of Israel. They had no idea that Jesus would suffer and die on the cross. Jesus did not want them to acknowledge him as the Christ until they knew exactly what that meant. In Mark 8, Jesus begins to teach about his suffering and death. Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. That was such a hard lesson that Peter actually began to rebuke Jesus. Jesus responded by calling Peter, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Jesus loved the designation, the Son of Man. That title appears in Daniel 7.13, which is the Old Testament description of the rule and reign of the Son of Man. But it said nothing, not a word, about the suffering of the Son of Man. Jesus had to complete the picture for his disciples. He wanted to make sure that they understood that he would suffer for the sins of the world before they started teaching that he was the Christ. Mark 1, verse 34 says, And he healed many that were sick of divers diseases and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. Why did Jesus prohibit the demons who knew him from speaking? In John 8, 44, Jesus identified Satan as the father of lies and said, that he was a murderer from the beginning. Demons are under the authority and leadership of Satan. Hell has been prepared for Satan and his angels. Demons reflect Satan's lying character. Jesus did not want the endorsement of diabolical spirits because their endorsement would actually have hindered the cause of truth and mercy. The idea is that our credibility can be compromised by testimony from the wrong source. Acts 16 tells us of a girl who was possessed with the spirit of divination. She was a fortune teller. She was crying out that Paul and his fellow ministers of the gospel were servants of the Most High God and that they were speaking the truth of God. Now, all of that was true. Paul was not denying that, but he did not want the truth coming from someone who is associated with untruth. So he rebuked the spirit to come out of the girl. This is all about credibility. When is the truth harmful? When the truth comes from the wrong source. 
When Jesus was on the Mount of Temptation, he confronted Satan. Satan quoted the scripture, and therefore Satan spoke the truth, yet Jesus rebuked him. This is one of the reasons why those who serve the Lord and who preach and teach his word should be above reproach in the sight of men. It is a very sad thing today that many who are associated with Christian ministry have some blots on their character. The message can be compromised by the lifestyle of the messenger. There are so many things in the Old Testament that we in the church age simply do not observe. How then is the Old Testament relevant for today? Yes, there is much in the Old Testament that is not obligatory for us because the Old Testament is covenant law. It provided the legal terms for God's covenant with Israel. Since we are no longer under that particular covenant, many of the laws and stipulations of that covenant are no longer binding on us. On the other hand, there are many things found in the Old Testament that are still very much binding on us. Murder, adultery, and incest are all condemned in the Old Testament. These are sins today as well. Just because something is condemned in Leviticus does not mean that it is not condemned today. Even though the Old Testament is covenant law, there are certain moral aspects of covenant law that are morally binding even on those who are outside of that covenant. In Romans 13, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It is clear from this that love is a perpetually binding ethic. In Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13, we see a strong condemnation of homosexuality, but Leviticus also condemns eating shellfish and pork. However, there is a big difference between the dietary prohibitions found in Leviticus and the prohibition against homosexuality. The latter is also prohibited in the New Testament, where the dietary restrictions are no longer in force. Paul wipes out the observance of times and special religious diets, but he never wipes out God's condemnation of homosexuality. It is common in some circles to reject everything in the Old Testament. Those who do so forget that there are moral obligations in the Old Testament that are still binding upon us. I've heard people reject a teaching in the Old Testament by saying, that's not for us. We are no longer under the law. However, there are some teachings in the Old Testament that predate the giving of the law. This was Paul's argument in Galatians 3.17, the law which was given 430 years after God's covenant of grace with Abraham does not nullify God's covenant of grace. The death penalty fits into that category. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Capital punishment was not instituted by Mosaic law, hence the passing of the Mosaic law does not nullify the death penalty. Today in our Resource Center, we have a War in the Middle East bundle featuring The Last War by Jim Fletcher and ISIS, Iran, and Israel by Mark Hitchcock, two books that will help you understand the current crisis in Israel and the Middle East. 
Get both books for a gift of $15 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144 or online swrc.com. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.